This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, this is Inside Story with Lee Tree Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, a look at the World Cup so far, especially with Morocco making history and making it to the semis, though it has, of course, been a complicated tournament with human rights and sports washing in the spotlight. We are going to be talking about all of that. And in the meantime, we want to hear from you as well. Have you been following the World Cup? What are some of the stories that you've been watching closely? Who are you supporting? You can call 7733 send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. This is Inside Story. It is 6.09. So, uh, just to try to lay some of the ground of what we're doing. Of course, I'm very excited to talk about this. I've been wanting to do a World Cup show ever since the World Cup began. So, Interrupted by Malaysian politics, you know, the just polls, small the petty things. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, here, here's where we find ourselves. And, and it seemed like the right time to do it because uh, Morocco as we said earlier, made history, uh, being the first African nation to make it to the semifinals and being treated in some ways as the de facto home team, right? So you've got all the other African fans kind of cheering them on. You've got the Middle Eastern fans cheering them on. And it's quite a lovely thing to see, but it's hard to talk about it only in that context without acknowledging that politically speaking, this has also been a very complicated World Cup. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Al Jazeera actually describes Morocco as both African and Arab. So it's interesting because it's North African and because it shares a lot of cultural and linguistic similarities with the, the Arab-speaking world, but then also part of the African continent and therefore is you know, deeply connected to uh, to that history and tradition. So, yeah, it's sort of, in some ways, it double dips in terms of identity. And, and it's, an, you know, it's wonderful that way. Uh, and it's a complicated country, and I think a lot of us probably know little about it apart from the, the rather exotic name of uh, Marrakesh, you know, for instance. Uh, the commentators the other day were already referencing Casablanca and as time goes by. So, so <laughs> there are all these tropes, I think, when it comes to Morocco. But uh, the other part of it, of course, is the host nation itself and the, the difficulties in some ways around about talking about the World Cup without talking about the complexities of, of the host nation because there have, of course, been concerns around human rights, whether it's to do with the building of the stadiums and uh, the people who have passed away or the working conditions. Um, there have also been conversations about about queer rights, LGBTQIA rights, um, and that and the rainbow uh, insignia, for example, not being able to be on the pitch, not being able to be displayed. So all of that is part and parcel of this larger conversation about sports washing, because of course, that that's in the mix. But do people really care when they're still cheering on their teams and tuning into the World Cup and the broadcasting rights have been sold? Yeah, but you know, the same people who make these arguments will probably say, you know, be the same people who would support the US as a host for the World Cup, uh, happily ignoring the human rights abuses of that nation. The fact that, you know, it's drone policy kills hundreds of third world peoples every year with impunity. So, you know, so I think the, the 
sometimes sympathetic to the criticism of focusing on human rights in in Qatar, uh, when in fact the alternatives, uh, you know, uh, will have kind of a blank check on that, or they they'll get a pass when it comes to human rights because people don't talk about. The, uh, the the atrocities that are committed by the American government, uh, you know, th- th- there's, there's a kind of asymmetry, I think, in talking about human rights. It's problematic because we don't want to diminish, in fact, the real problems of labor rights or, in fact, of sexual minorities in the Middle East. So we're going to be unpacking all of this with Dr. James Dorsey, uh, who is at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University. We'd like to hear from you, though. Have you been following the World Cup? Um, Who are you supporting? But also, what are some of the stories that you've been watching? Have you been following along on all these other political questions surrounding the tournament? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. It is 6.14. You're listening to Insight Story with Lynn and Sherrod. Today we are talking about the the controversies and triumphs in many ways of the Qatar World Cup. It's a complicated one. And asking you, have you been following the World Cup this year? What are some of the stories you've been watching out for? Who are you supporting? We want to know all of it. That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now, we have Dr. James Dorsey, Adjunct Senior Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University. James, thanks for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, as always. So, uh, Morocco, making it into the semi-finals of the World Cup, has, according to Al Jazeera, among other outlets, uh, evoked a rare show of unity across the Arab world as they celebrated the win. Um, I wanted to ask you, is it true that this this win and the progression of Morocco in the tournament and the games as a whole have succeeded in uniting the region? And if so, why? Well, I think that, you know, it's important on two levels. The primary level is the fact that this is the first time that a uh, African and Arab team makes it to the semifinals. And there's a larger context to this. And that context is that uh, Africa, particularly the Muslim world, has really been on the defensive in many ways uh, since 9-11. So with other words, on the two, uh, in the last two decades, and this is a moment to shine and to try and re- uh, address that, uh, that image. And the second uh, context, which is a much broader context, which is the rebalancing of power in the world order, the move from a unipolar to a multipolar world. Now, in terms of the unifying effect of this, I think one's got to be cautious. Yes, today, everybody's, uh, certainly Africans, Arabs, Middle Easterners are celebrating Morocco and uh, are rejoicing in its success. But I would argue that if history teaches us anything, it's that this is a fleeting moment. It is not a lasting change. And there are examples in history, including in the Middle East, where you've had this unifying effect, people who hate each other, wage war against each other, hug each other in the streets for 24 hours, and then they go back to killing each other. 
James, uh, the World Cup has also made uh, the Palestinian cause, um, you know, uh, very visible with supporters coming from many non-Arab and non-Muslim countries like Brazil, I think quite famously there. Do you think that this is one of the unintended consequences of hosting the games in Qatar? I don't think that anybody planned this as such, although I would say that with one caveat. Uh, the Gutteries have used the Palestinian issue to counter criticism by uh, European officials who were attending uh, matches in Qatar of their teams and were wearing One Love armbands. And so in response, you had Qataris wearing pro-Palestinian armbands. And of course, it serves the Qatari policy of not wanting to join the United Arab Emirates and other countries in uh, recognizing Israel as long as Israel has not uh, moved towards a solution of the Palestinian problem. What I don't think was intended, but is an unintended benefit from a Qatari point of view, was that what we saw in Qatar over the last two weeks was a demonstration that what elites in the, in the, in the Gulf and in the Arab world uh, and governments may want to do with Israel is not necessarily the, something that is shared by public opinion. And that was very graphically demonstrated on the streets of uh, Doha. Yeah, just very quick. Do, do a lot of people, uh, are, are a lot of people aware that Morocco in 2020 uh, recognized Israel, the state of Israel? And th does that play into, you know, the, the, um, the, the feelings around the team? Well, let me put it this way. Empirically, I don't know. Uh, you would have to do polling, which I don't think has been done. Fact of the matter is, though, that the uh, recognition of Israel, the establishment of diplomatic relations in 2020 by four Arab states, and important Arab states, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, was big news. You had uh, manifestations on the lawn of the White House with the leaders signing uh, the documents involved in establishing those diplomatic relations. So it's been a very public event. Does that mean that everybody is aware of it? Your guess is as good as mine. James, every time you come on uh, to talk about this intersection of sports and politics, which is most of the times we've had you on air with us, um, I ask you some version of this question. But I think it's been really very forward in this World Cup because uh, from the time of FIFA allowing Qatar to host the 2022 World Cup, there's been controversy. It's, it's been quite nonstop um, from why uh, larger countries weren't picked, US, for instance, to the question of labour, LGBTQ rights, the weather. Um, why are global sporting events unable to separate themselves from larger and often polarised debates about rights? I think there are two reasons for that. One is uh, a generic reason. Sports and politics are inseparable Siamese twins. They're joined at the hip and there's no way you can celebrate, uh, uh, you can separate them. So by definition, political issues will come up and they've come up throughout the history of these major mega sporting events. Think of the 1980s with black power in Mexico, just to give you an example, but also they are political events. So if you go back to 1936, the uh, Olympic Games in uh, hit Nazi Germany. You go to the 1978 uh, World Cup in Argentina at a time that there was a military junta in place. 
these were ways for these kind of regimes to try and present themselves in a different light on the international stage. And the other element, of course, is particularly today with explosion of all kinds of media, uh, this is a phenomenal platform. You want to have your voice heard. This is the platform you want to do it on. So can we, and I don't know if you really want to weigh in on this, but there's an issue of this at an individual or team level. And, you know, the former Arsenal manager has come out to say that the teams that advanced most uh, without complications were those best prepared mentally and not distracted by political issues. I mean, is there a space for political expression by individual sports persons and that you would point to? And do you think it's really distracting? First of all, I think if my thesis on sports and politics is correct, the uh, athletes are involved in a sporting event, but they're also involved in a political event. And there's no way that you can separate the two. Second of all, um, athletes have as much freedom of expression as do others. And athletes have made it a point, again, throughout history, going back, for example, to the Black Power manifestation at the uh, in Mexico in 1986 of having their voice heard politically. If you go and look at the run-up to the uh, Gata World Cup, it was eight European football associations and national squads that wanted to express themselves with an armband uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, of the rights of LGBTQ people and were banned from doing so by FIFA on the notion that political expression on the, uh, on the pitch is forbidden because politics and because of the fiction of politics and sports being separate. The reporting around this World Cup has been very complex. Uh, there was plenty of coverage about human rights violations and a more restrictive approach, even with visiting fans. Uh, locals countered with accusations of Orientalism from foreign reports and pointing out that really every major sporting event has its fair share of this, so why sing single us out? Now that we're deep into the tournament, we're in the last week, um, how do you see the way this media, or how do you see the way the media has framed this World Cup? Well, I think that framing remains, even though it's to some extent being balanced by the fact that this has been an incredibly exciting tournament with very many ex unexpected outcomes. And that obviously is part of the story. But I think as a matter of principle, the problem is this. There is legitimate criticism of Qatar in terms of migrant worker rights, in terms of LGBTQ rights, in terms of democratic freedoms. Uh, the criticism fell, in a sense, into two categories. One category was exactly what it should be, focusing on those issues. And the one caveat I would make there, that these are issues that are not unique to Qatar. And in some ways, Qatar's critics should have uh, responded to that. Uh, second of all, uh, part of the criticism was uh, bigotry prejudice, bias, and sour grapes. And I think the, 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 the last factor in this that should not be forgotten is that Qatar and particularly the United Arab Emirates have been waging a covert information war for the last decade in which the World Cup was part of the mix. And so there was a lot of reporting that came out of that 
that was often in inaccurate and based on mis or disinformation. In my mind, the problem of Gata's critics is uh, twofold. And so the likes of, uh, or threefold, the likes of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, um, the International Labor Organization and others. One is they did not distance themselves or only very recently and really only tangentially distance themselves from this bias and bigotry and prejudice. And they should have made the clear distinction that that's not part of what they're saying. Uh, the second mistake that they made in my mind is that uh, it was almost like singling out Qatar. And that was quite obvious because Qatar was hosting the World Cup. But I think they would have been more effective had they pointed out that this is an issue that is an issue across the Gulf. But when it comes to aspects of the migrant labor situation, it's a global issue. It's true for Europe with migrant workers. It's true for Southeast Asia. And that's something that should have been, or it's true for uh, migrant labor that US military forces across the globe hire. Uh, and that's something that they should have pointed out. And the third thing that I think that they should have done is Gata, unlike other uh, targets of criticism, has actually engaged with its critics, with Amnesty International, with Human Rights Watch. And there were clearly things that Gata could do, some of which it's done, maybe too little, too late, but nonetheless. So uh, improved working conditions, abolition of the labor sponsorship or kafala system, uh, exit visas, these kind of things. But there are also things that Gata could not do or would not do. So for example, uh, independent trade unions, collective bargaining, those are issues that within a, that are impossible within an autocracy. And so if you demand those, in effect, you're demanding regime change, and that's not going to happen. James, you know, coming back to the question of Israel, and Israelis and Israeli media had a hard time during the games, I believe. And um, but. When we and we spoke about this earlier, the normalization of relations with Israel by some Arab nations, UAE, Sudan, Morocco, you mentioned earlier, is the real challenge um, at the level of the ordinary citizen, the ordinary Arab uh, region citizen who who has to deal with now in adopting these games, having to do having to deal with um, uh, direct engagements with Israelis. What has the World Cup taught us about this particular dynamic? As state relations change, what about people to people? Well, I think, first of all, the, the Israelis had false expectations. They believed, or many, and, you know, on an individual level, that uh, this wave of, of, uh, uh, of recognition of Israel meant that Israel was being embraced in the region. And they don't quite understand that the Palestinian issue isn't a motive issue, not only in the region, look at uh, Malaysia, where it's a very emotive issue. Uh, what they also don't understand is that the Arab world has come a long way in the sense that it has, um, uh, it's accepted the existence of Israel. The issue is no longer Israel's existence. The issue is on what terms and for many in the Arab world, those terms are a solution to the Palestinian problem. Now, it doesn't help that all of this is helping is happening at a moment 
at which Israel is about to get its most far-right government and most uncompromising government towards Palestinians. So obviously, many people will feel this is not the right moment. The last point I want to make, and that goes back to uh, your first question about the unifying factor, and that is that uh, the idea that football can be a driver of bringing people together is pie in the sky. Um, let me take an example, which is not football, ping pong. So in the 1970s, ping pong brought China and the United States together. It wasn't ping pong that brought them together. It was that then President Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong in China wanted to come together and ping pong was a useful tool. That goes for football too. So if you have an environment, a political environment in which there's a will to build bridges, then football's an, a, a, a one vehicle to do so. If you don't have the environment, football is not going to create the conditions for bridge building. James, we're actually over time, but I want to ask you a simple, I guess, yes, no question. Would you say this event has been effective sports washing? Well, I don't have a yes, no question <laughs> answer to you. And the reason for it is I don't use the term sports washing. I think the notion that this is all about simply re uh, cleaning up reputation is wrong. In Gata's case, without going into detail, this is about defense policy. This is about economic diversification. Now, reputation and image plays into that, but to make image the sole and primary driver of this, I think is a, is a, is a faulty analysis. James, thanks so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. James Dorsey, adjunct senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University, talking to us about the World Cup. Uh, let us know, have you been following? We'll be back for your messages. BFM 89.9. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. It is 6.39. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And today we've been talking about the Qatar World Cup uh, because... It has been a very exciting tournament. There have been a lot of surprises. There have been a lot of lovely sporting stories. Uh, Morocco being chief among them, the first African nation to make it to the semifinals. But there have also been the usual... Um, I guess what happens when there is a major global event in the Middle East, um, the kinds of things that you would expect to happen, a, a sort of focus or shift in the way that things are being reported alongside the legitimate criticisms that could be leveled at almost any host nation um, about things like workers' rights, uh, things like, well, actually human rights as a whole. Yeah, it's also an opportunity, I think, uh, to learn about a country. And so, you know, for the first time, I actually got a bit of history on Qatar. And it's a fascinating one because it went from a period of poverty uh, to now having a GDP twice that of Britain uh, that used to be its colonial master. It only got independence in 1971. Uh, there was a coup of a son against a father. 
and there was the discovery of liquid petroleum gas that really spurred them from their petroleum-based, uh, crude-based uh, economy that was made them rich um, and uh, into this kind of a category of the super rich. So Qatar also a story of, okay, it's petroleum dollars, but it's also a success story in that, uh, you know, they have this rapid transformation of a society and how it deals with that, including social tensions that come from that. I think these are the untold stories around Qatar that, uh, that I haven't really seen in the reporting, but it's there. It's kind of floating in the, in the ether, ether, as it were, because of the World Cup. So uh, this World Cup has been an interesting exercise for me in holding two opposing thoughts in, in my head at the same time, uh, which on the one hand, as someone who enjoys not just football, but tournaments in particular, I think that the group stages of football tournaments are the best when you get the random mix-ups of teams, when you get the the most surprises because uh, people are oftentimes unprepared to face one another and they're not as slick as they are going to be now in the later stages when they've been working together for a little while longer, when you see the well-oiled machinery coming to play, a bit more rough and tumble in the early stages. And so I, I really, really love and enjoy the, the the early stages of football tournaments and the World Cup as a whole is such a big event that you find yourself swept away by it. The other side of it, of course, has been that I do remember feeling disappointed when Qatar was awarded uh, the the opportunity to host it and, and not for anything. I, I think it was purely because of the, the criticisms that we have since read and which our guest uh, James Dorsey earlier, I think, really helped to contextualise, pointing out that the way the criticisms have been put across are problematic. That does not, in essence, though, mean that they themselves are not without merit. And so it, it's the holding of two things together at the same time, knowing that there are problems uh, with the host nation. Again, acknowledging that this would be the case almost anywhere, but acknowledging that there are serious problems with the host nation, while also thinking, what an exciting World Cup, I'm going to keep watching. So one of the things that could come up paradoxically with giving a platform to a country with a poor uh, uh, record on human rights is that it forces them, because they're in the limelight and because of these bad practices are in the limelight, it forces them to rethink them, right? There's an incentive now to shift where it wouldn't have been available before. And so if the politics of disengagement uh, and of deplatforming in the regimes you don't like uh, kind of prevail, then we, li- we miss an opportunity, which is not to say that necessarily everything will come, everything good will come out of it or that, you know, as James also said, that somehow sports will bring people together and solve all problems or t- turn an aut- autocratic regime into a democratic one. None of that is going to happen overnight. It would be ridiculous to expect anything, including a sporting event. We can't even hope that the UN and its <laughs> right. various charters transforms the world. I mean, the world is complicated and, and people are on, a, on different journeys, right? So what opportunities it's opened up for Qataris to rethink? What is there in the Qatari media where they've had to deal with the, some of this criticism? How much has uh, has there, have their responses? And I've seen some of their responses. Some of it was quite churlish and, and you know, adolescent, uh, you know, the way they dealt with the... the 
the German team and its symbolic kind of uh, support for the LGBTQ cause. Um, uh, all that, I mean, you know, there is a conversation and maybe uh, the World Cup will plug us into, for a moment, into the Qatari conversation about what kind of society they want to live in. So we do have messages that have come in. Um, and before that, though, I wanted to ask, you know, we've been talking about the kind, we've been asking people, uh, have you been following the World Cup? But then also, uh, if you have been following the World Cup, what have you been looking out for? What are the stories that are most compelling to you? Uh, if you'd like to weigh in, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note uh, or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, Sharad, before we get to the messages, what have you been following? What what has been the thing that you found most intriguing about the World Cup? Okay, so I um, I haven't really been following it that closely. <laughs> I'm not a big football fan. I must say that I tend to watch the games uh, uh, when they come to close to the finals. Uh, the, it is very exciting. And you say rough and tumble. Yes, that's one of the attractions of uh, the World Cup. Um, and, I, and the fact that so many people are excited about it, right? So, um, but I have actually just been, like I said, skirting around things like the history of Qatar, mm. uh, a little bit about uh, I mean, the France as a, as a team, uh, you know, plugging into uh, why Brazil failed. Was it complacency? And how people think about it, right? So there's this video that goes, uh, that's been uh, circulating of uh, Neymar. Is it Neymar? Uh, the, one of the the, the, the Brazilian foot, um, yes. footballers. And, then, and the team was dancing, but they seemed out of sync. And then somebody said, well, you know, when I saw them unable to dance in sync, I knew the game was up. And I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> so is that how, uh, you know, a football fan thinks? I mean, there's all kinds of... There's magic in it. There's a bit of superstition. There's, you know, incantations. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, but I must say I'm not immersed in it. So I've been really excited about the Asian teams. Um, seeing Japan and South Korea progress to the group stages was, was very fun, especially because they played well and, and they played their hearts out and the Korean fans were dressed as courtiers and, and that was fun to see you know in the heat in the heat of Qatar so I've been rooting for anybody Asian um, I think that a lot of people in Malaysia would kind of vibe with that um, watching these teams progress but I've also been enjoying the the small uh, historical the historical feuds that have existed um, England France for example it's it's centuries worth of resentments boiled into one match and you know watching that play out um, France is going to play Morocco next and of course they had control of Morocco for for decades for um, for how long exactly yeah two decades three decades and so I, I always like seeing people play against their former colonizers <laughs> I find that intriguing so there's also a very interesting fact about Morocco Morocco has been I think it's one of the last countries involved in disputes over decolonization because there's southwest um, there's an area that Morocco con controls that has been suing for independence for years, right? And so um, there is this dispute and this this territory remains, uh, you know, on the UN list for decolonization. So um, so all kinds of things emerge in the discussions. Uh, like, like you, I'm also, I think if there's kind of a, a tribal instinct in me, it does come out during a World Cup, uh, you know, 
tend to support the the, the third world um, teams. Love the Asian teams. I, I love that story about North Korea getting to the to nineteen sixty six World Cup, and that's an extraordinary story. And they won the hearts of British uh, fans when they arrived. Uh, and you know the small country, you know, um, kind of communist dictatorship, and and kind of what they did and what they aspired to do. Yeah. So there's all these inspiring stories but I like again I'm not really a football fan as you can tell from my inability to name a Brazilian football player of, of was global it Neymar? Repute. <laughs> I wasn't sure how to pronounce his name to Neymar, Neymar. Uh, so if we look to the messages uh, let's start with this from Salah who is coming in with a uh, clarification of sorts saying Sudan has no relations with Israel I'm from Sudan and this was in reference to a point that you made earlier with our guest Dr. James Dorsey Sharad yeah so uh, we were talking about uh, Arab nations uh, in the process of normalization normalizing uh, their relationship to the state of Israel uh, so uh, it, there is, in fact, uh, what agreement was signed in October 2020 when the two countries, Israel and Sudan, agreed to normalize relations. But they haven't, uh, as as far as I can tell, established full diplomatic relations. But what did happen in April uh, 2021, Salah, is that the Sudanese cabinet approved a bill abolishing the 1958 law boycotting Israel. So there has been movement uh, uh, in terms of that relationship, not as close, perhaps, as UAE. Um, but but nevertheless, part of a movement for normalization. Uh, we also have a voice note that's come in. Um, here is Hanif. I watched the World Cup this year for Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal and also because this year is the final World Cup for Cristiano Ronaldo. So. Hanif, uh, thanks so much for that. I, I read a uh, headline recently that pointed out that this might be the, the sunset in some ways for what has been one of the starriest generations of world football, um, a period of football in which you've seen domination at the same time by people like Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, uh, Luka Modric, Neymar, and that for some of these people, this is going to be their their final go at the, the biggest stage. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo is 37. He has said that he's likely to stay on for the Euros in 2024. So it's not the final of his international career, but final World Cup, very likely. Well, there's a lot of cruelty around uh, this as well, isn't there? You're because, looking right at me. No, because... no, 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 not you. <laughs> I was actually going to uh, refer to uh, uh, Messi. Who, there's a video of him uh, and the, it, he's looking at a video of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, mm. kind of very depressed or falling to his knees after the game, you know, being kicked out. And, and there's a smirk on Messi's face. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those kind of emotions as well not just you know happy emotions but uh, a bit of well, you've got your comeuppance kind of emotions. A little bit. It also happened, um, you know, if you're a Manchester United fan then there has been some of that going on where there might be that resentment where you're not were you kind of happy, perhaps, to see him not do that well? So this is tribalism at its best, right? Yeah. It, it's tribalism without blood and spilling of guts and displacing millions of people and dropping bombs or having drone strikes, you know. And so, yeah, I... I I used to not like the tribalism of sports, but now embrace it as the, the best kind of tribalism. Better than nation states fighting each other over resources and, uh, you know, 
and you know, well, basically being brutal. This is not brutality. This is this is beauty. It is the beautiful game. We'd like to hear from you. Have you been following along the World Cup? Uh, who are you supporting? What are the, some of the stories that you've been watching, the big standout moments? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. It is 6.54 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We have been talking about the World Cup and asking you, have you been following along? What are some of the stories you've been uh, watching? Who are you supporting? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, so we have, let's see, some messages. Uh, let's start with a voice note, actually. Here is Patricia. I haven't watched a single match this year, but I am following the news to see what the scores are like, which teams are being eliminated, which ones are advancing, and so on and so forth. This year, I'm really intrigued with how the underdogs team, so to speak, like Morocco, has been winning their matches and eliminating some of the big leagues so far. So I'm really looking forward for their semifinals match against France, and uh, hopefully I haven't jinxed it. Morocco, uh, Patricia, thank you so much for that voice note. Morocco has emerged as a big theme in the messages. Uh, here's Asha saying, watching Morocco make it into the semis was a real highlight for me. I'm a sucker for an underdog story. But honestly, they played such a good defensive game. Talk about playing to your strengths. And on top of that, the rise of a new star like Ashraf Hakimi with his Moroccan origins is almost a rags to riches arc raised in Spain. Now one of those spearheading Morocco. What rousing evidence for the positives of migration. Even for a casual follower, these are the sorts of moments that make the World Cup so exciting. Yeah, so the the multicultural aspect of this is is fascinating, right? And uh, people draw all kinds of conclusions, some of them quite cruel and racist and others, you know, kind of seeing how globalization has changed the nature of na- nation states and what you claim to be, you know, a, a Frenchman or a, you know, a Moroccan or whatever it is you might have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for uh, um uh, you know the the little train that could. What is that expression that uh, Patricia <laughs> used? No, Asha used uh, the uh, underdog. The underdog story. That's the thing, you know. And you know, Cameroon. I remember Cameroon yeah, doing yeah. very well in the World Cup. Uh, did they win that year? They did. No, no, no they it, didn't. They, they just got into Shiraz, the semifinals. It, no, they didn't even get into the semifinals because oh. Morocco is the first African nation to make it there. So logically speaking, Cameroon did not make it to the semis. I think it was the quarters. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. Whatever it is, it was a great story. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and we all like that. I mean, because, uh, as you know, because we're Malaysian, we're almost, at least we haven't had an opportunity to cheer on, cheer, cheer on our own team. So you end up having to pick another team, right? You have to, can you imagine the, the nation? I mean, I know it's a cricketing nation, but India and Indians, who are they going to support? You know, and cricketing nations, I think because they don't have a footballing uh, tradition, have to pick somebody and because you want to pick somebody, right? You want to be cheering someone on. That's the that's really the whole point. I also love the mention of a defensive game uh, because that's really been a mainstay of the the Moroccan 
tactic, uh, I think here, they haven't conceded a goal that wasn't scored by themselves. They, they haven't actually conceded a goal uh, except for one own goal. So it's very impressive. Uh, Lee Jun says, Turkey managed to reach the semi-finals of the World Cup in 2002. Why wasn't their advance celebrated as much as Morocco? I also noticed Japan and South Korea have been consistent in reaching the World Cup. I often wondered why China never have. It's hard to believe a country of 1 billion, you can't find 23 players. Um, we might, uh, let's see, Russia hosted the the World Cup and Winter Olympics. None of these sporting events have improved their human rights records. uh, And also almost everything in Qatar was built by Chinese companies. Yeah, so if you look at the biggest uh, countries by population and and look at their sporting um, achievements, a lot of countries, you know, uh, just like in India, I mean, how many gold medals does an India win in Olympics, right? Um, and it might be because unlike a China that equal in size, billion people or more, is that they don't have a national policy of uh, pushing the athletes. Uh, well, I mean, in recent times, we've had a couple of Indian athletes do very well. But um, yeah, maybe it's that. It's more policy than it is uh, and culture. You're not a footballing nation, you're not a footballing nation, that's it. And to your point, Legion, about Turkey uh, not being celebrated as much as Morocco, I think the sentiment is different. I'm not sure if the comparison you're drawing is to a... Um is to a country that has Muslim representation, but in this case, we're talking about it's it's a double thing, right? They represent in some they represent Africa, but they are also representing Middle Eastern nations, and then um, you know Muslim players, and, and there's a lot of it going on there. So perhaps uh, the answer rests in that. Uh, keep those thoughts coming. If you'd like to weigh in, are you watching the World Cup? Who are you supporting? What story are you following along on? Um, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.